you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Roy Thomas, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your co-host today, Craig Elliott. Uh, We're looking at Doctor Strange. Yeah, this is our first venture into Doctor Strange, and it's actually kind of my first venture just in general to Doctor Strange. I've never really... I've read the odd issue here and there, Um, like especially with like the Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War tie-ins and that kind of stuff. And I've read a lot of the old Ditko and Stanley uh, Doctor Strange stuff from the 60s, but I've never really ventured into to Doctor Strange really, really deep. Are you a Doctor Strange fan? Uh, more recently, I've been following the, the Bachelor run, but um, no, it's it's one of those things, like you said, it's it's a character that I don't uh, I don't think I've spent a lot of time really taking a look at, except for when he shows up in other in other books, and you're aware of his presence, but not especially not through the the 70s, 80s, and 90s. No, it's not a character that I had a chance to really really look at and you're talking about sort of the odd issue and, and that's what this is really this epic collection <laughs> yeah, it kind of is yeah it is a bunch of odd issues but it's um i think that that's what makes this whole idea of the epic collection so great is it's taking advantage of the opportunity to bring together a whole bunch of odd issues that that are are one cohesive or a couple different cohesive stories that that were actually really fulfilling to read and really interesting and engaging um, and I think that's a fantastic piece of it. I mean, this issue or this this collection is is three issues of Doctor Strange, or four issues of Doctor Strange from the late '60s, and then one issue of Submariner and one issue of Incredible Hulk, which which tie into that story. Mm-hmm. An issue of Marvel feature, um, you know, a good chunk of the Marvel premiere stuff. But it's also interesting because it's not whole issues of Marvel premiere because Marvel premiere wasn't always a full twenty-two page. Doctor Strange story, so sometimes they just plucked the the three or four pages from a Marvel premiere issue that were part of Doctor Strange and and left the rest of it out. And then finally, in in the late in the mid seventies and seventy four, when they relaunched the Doctor Strange title, um, it's the first five issues of that as well. And it's it's really interesting to sort of get this this hodgepodge melange of books, but they make for actually one very interesting collection, one one great story. And I think part of the reason for that is that Roy Thomas is kind of overseeing all of it. He was the writer for these last few issues of Doctor Strange here, and then he was the editor for all of the rest of that. And um, and and then in the 90s, he took over writing Doctor Strange again when they when they brought him back again for another series. Yeah, no, you could almost have called this, instead of calling this the Marvel Epic Collection for Doctor Strange, you could have called it the Roy Thomas Collection. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did a lot for this character for sure. Uh, and throughout this um, episode, you'll hear some clips from Roy Thomas and some clips from Steve Englehart. 
And I got to talk to both of them about specifically about Doctor Strange, and um, and they had some really interesting things to say. I also tried to track down Frank Brunner, but he was uh, elusive. He wouldn't answer any of my messages. So um, I'm hoping that I can still talk to him eventually because he seems, I've heard some other interviews with him, and he seems like a pretty friendly guy. It would be great to hear some of his insight to the, the artistic side of things here because uh, he did a lot for this book when it was relaunched in the 70s. But other than that, uh, if you want to hear the full interviews for Roy Thomas and uh, for Steve Englehart, then you can hit us up at patreon.com slash thunderquacknetwork. I'll be posting them up there, and eventually they'll make their way here to the regular podcast. But if you want to hear them in advance, um, you need to become one of our Patreon supporters. And, uh, and we have quite a few Patreon supporters already, and we thank you for that because... We, uh, you know, running podcasts is expensive with no revenue streams. So it's good to have uh, your support on that one. And we thank you. One thing I think it's important to know for um, just where Marvel was right here is um, Marvel was in a weird spot because their distribution was handled by a company that was pretty much owned. It was owned by DC Comics. And so because of that, DC... And I don't know exactly the all of the behind the scenes stuff, but they kind of put a limit to how many titles Marvel was allowed to put out because they were a competitor. So we got a lot of split books, like Tales of Suspense had Iron Man stories and Captain America stories in it. Um, and uh, Tales to Astonish had um, Submariner and the Hulk. And Strange Tales had Agent Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Doctor Strange. And they were bi-monthly, so... Uh, you, they had technically they had more titles that that they were allowed to have, but because they were on a bi-monthly schedule, they could put out um, they they hit the number that they were allowed to put out per month. Um, but uh, and then there came a time when uh, they had to cut a number of their books, and so Doctor Strange, X Men, um, and a couple others, I think maybe Silver Surfer, they were all on the chopping block. So Doctor Strange was one of those titles that was a casualty here. On the chopping block with, with numbers that I think Marvel would they, be head over heels to have right it's now. It's true, yeah. They um, the, the numbers that were low for them are numbers that you don't even see in, in comics today, which is unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Um, and I don't remember, does Roy talk a little bit about that in the interview at all? Yeah, uh, Roy, Roy gave some of the sales figures a bit, uh, if I recall correctly. Um, I think he was, mm. particularly, he was just bemoaning the fact that Doctor Strange had been canceled with <laughs> with what is uh, an extraordinarily healthy readership, even back then. But but for today, I, I don't think anybody's getting those numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that was part of why Roy worked so hard to keep the character alive even after the book itself had been initially canceled. Mm. I mean, he succeeded because he was able to resurrect the title. Yeah. Well, let's hear Roy talk about those numbers in his own words. I always remember that <laughs> that um, at the time we canceled that book, it was selling something like, I don't know, in the low 40% so about a, I believe about a 400,000 print run <laughs> you know, up there. So it was actually selling a hundred or 200,000 copies a month, and they'd send up rockets if they had sales on a comic like that now. <laughs> yeah, right. But the economics at that time were such that, you know, selling for 15, 20 cents or whatever it was, it, it just wasn't enough to uh, to make it. And, and so that book and, you know, Shield and a couple of things, uh, at X-Men kind of, you know, those books kind of dropped off at the end of the decade. Yeah. 
But they all came back strong later. Craig, what do we need to know if we're not Doctor Strange fans at all and we're when we're jumping into this volume here, what are the things that we need to know? Uh, well, this volume is unique for Doctor Strange because I think Thomas and Englehart really try to bring him back to an earthly presence. So it's a different take on the character. And I, I don't know everything that happened previously, so I can't even totally speak to that. Uh, I, I do find it interesting also um, in this book. So, but but to sort of comment on that just a bit, they, Doctor Strange has been this hugely occult, spiritual um, sort of larger-than-life figure who really sort of seemed to be almost one of Mar- Marvel's more cosmic characters. I mean, he wasn't in outer space. He was in he was in the dark dimension. He was in other yeah. space. Yeah. And uh, they brought him back to Earth. I mean, he goes on adventures into the dark dimension in this series anyways, but but they were trying to give him a grounding, so they, they gave him a presence in New York where everyone else in the Marvel Universe is based, and they, they gave him, uh, tried to develop more of a supporting cast for him that are more human- and, and Clea in this is very unique. The Clea in this series, mm-hmm. she's only really like that in this series. Prior to this, she's helping him defeat uh, Dormammu. Yep. In fact, the, the the Doctor Strange movie from last year, the the strategy he uses to defeat Dormammu in the movie was Clea's strategy from the comics yeah. in the 60s. Clea came up with the time, time loop. And the Clea following this, uh, in fact, it's three issues after into the doc, new Doctor Strange series after the ones that are collected here. So issue eight, where you find out that she's actually Dormammu's... Uh, oh, spoiler alert, by the way, but uh, you find out she's Dormammu's niece and she ends up ruling the Dark Dimension. So you get this very brief period of time where Doctor Strange has been grounded and Clea is this naive, innocent, sort of humanoid person trying to adapt to life on Earth, which doesn't take in the in the long run of this. So this is a very interesting period in Doctor Strange, mm-hmm. um, giving you a chance to just see this sort of human uh, Doctor Strange. Yeah, and this book opens, and Doctor Strange has um, a, a different sort of alias. He's wearing a, a mask, like his costume has a mask and stuff, and it's it's a different persona than we're used to seeing in Doctor Strange. Um, it's something that only happened very uh, for a very short time in in the comics prior to this volume. You, you'd see it come out in volume in the Epic Collection, Volume Two, which is not out yet. But Roy Thomas wanted to um, to have a more superhero kind of look to to his character to Doctor Strange um to to kind of blend in a little bit more with the rest of the Marvel universe. Yeah, so it's just a different take on the character which doesn't last very long. In fact, it doesn't really last when the book is canceled. Um that's kind of the last time we see this personality because when they revive it in the 70s, they they create one little story that that does away with that part of Strange's life and restores him back to the way he was. Um, because I think that's what people wanted to see. We have some feedback, some listener feedback. We asked uh, some people to give us their thoughts on this volume of Doctor Strange to see what they thought. And uh, we got a couple of replies. One reply here on Facebook from our friend Josh. He says, trippy, colorful, disturbing action adventure, everything you want in a Doctor Strange book. The Marvel premiere series really was an epic with Lovecraftian horror done in the Marvel manner. Uh, Curious how they got the legendary Gardner Fox to write. I bet Roy Thomas had something to do with it. 
Shumagorath, Kegliostro, and Silver Dagger are awesome additions to Doc's personal rogues gallery, and seeing him take on the official title of Sorcerer Supreme is tragic yet historic. And on a personal side note, as I buy these epics to, to eventually replace my essentials, um, that's the black and white line that, that kind of preceded this. Uh, this epic series truly benefits from color, uh, what with the dimension hopping, magic spells, etc. Looking forward to volume 13 and everything in between. Volume 13 is the next one that's being released. It's actually the, the final volume in the Doctor Strange epic collections. I, I'm guessing because that's when the 90s series stopped. This epic collection, by the way, if you even if you have previous collections, um, a separate reality has been collected previously. The the mm-hmm. main story arc that that lends its title to this epic collection, but it excluded. Um, it is previously all previous collections have excluded the the four issues of Marvel Premier Eleven um, do not appear, and they're not the most exciting uh, issues. And we'll, we're going to discuss those, but they're just a four four pages that. Um, the four pages where he's sort of officially letting everyone know he's 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 accepting the mantle. It, mm-hmm. It's just a transitional four pages, yeah. but it's they it's were they there. were dropped out of previous collections. They weren't included. If you're wanting to read it, you get that four that that little exchange with the hermit isn't in previous collections of this story arc. Wow. Um, okay, so we have another message. This was given to me over the Marvel Masterworks forum, and he says. Uh, just sign up to this board to let you know that I really enjoy your podcast. Um, this is from Volstag. And uh, he says, like yourself, I am a big fan of the epic format and have been following along as, as best I can with what you've been reading. Comments on Doctor Strange Volume 3. I've been wanting to get into the 70s series for a while now, and this was the best way in. I haven't read much Doctor Strange, but have always found this character interesting. I recently read Engelhart's Avengers and Defenders run and have been eager to get more of his 70s material. This volume didn't disappoint. His issues were certainly the strongest in terms of writing, but the whole volume was, uh, at the very least, fun, if not groundbreaking. The artists were the stars, though. Brunner and Collins steal the show here. Collins' relentless pacing and splash pages made for uh, an average, and he says, in quotes, uh, below, possibly below average story. Um... The Marvel premiere issue story was truly an epic, and the final Silver Dagger arc was fun to wrap your head around. If the villain was, if, even if the villain was a bit ridiculous, um, I really look forward to Volume Four, which should include the rest of Engelhart's run and some of Jim Starlin's issues, if I'm not mistaken. So he says he has a couple questions here. Aside from Volume Thirteen, the next epic coming out, which volumes are you most hoping come out next? Uh, I would like four. I'd like to get, like he was talking about, getting a chance to see uh, where this is going to go, the end of the the the, the uh, Engelhart run, the beginning of Starlin. Mm-hmm. Um, five, I'm assuming, will be mostly Starlin. I love Jim Starlin's cosmic stuff, uh, but I haven't had a chance to really explore Starlin's run on, on Doctor Strange. So I think that would be um, that would be really fun to see. And and I have no idea what Marvel's planning. I have no inside information. On this. I, if, <laughs> yeah. if, like, volume... 10 or 11 or 12 somewhere in there they sneak in the sort of eight or nine issues of secret defenders where he's randomly pulling um allies <laughs> to fight occult right. messes i think that'd be really exciting to see those issues i don't know if they'll be in it but i, I i'm eager to, to see what marvel puts into those because this first one established that they're willing to pull from from other titles to to fill out the doctor strange mm-hmm. pantheon so well and the other issues that they pulled here are they were tying up loose ends because the series was canceled 
Um, I think that was part of the issue. Um, and Marvel did recently just collect the, those Doctor Strange Secret Defenders comics into a big fat collection. So I'm not, I don't know if they'll include it in here, but that would be interesting to see. Because, um, yeah, it's not it's not that many issues, I don't think. But no, because he, he gave away pretty quickly to, um, to was it Doctor Voodoo, I think, was the one who took over right, pretty yeah, quickly? I think so. I mean, I don't know if they'll be in there or not, and, and they're... They're great read on their own in their own collection. I just think it'd be interesting to see. I'm just curious to see what what other random things Marvel will pull into Doctor Strange, if if, right. it, if anything at all. Well, I agree with you. I'd like to see volume five. I'm for four and five, but I'd also like to see whatever volume starts the '90s series. And I know there's an omnibus that's coming out that's collecting a bunch of these issues, but um, those are some fun fun issues as well. Roy Thomas comes back and uh, and does a great job. So yeah, I'd like to see those as well. Uh, and then a second question is the recent Aaron Bacello run just ended on the current book. If you could pick any creative team or single writer artist to assign to Doctor Strange, who would it be? And he says, I would love to see Al Ewing and Marcos Martin. Ewing's Ultimates dealt with some really high concept ideas and Martin's work on The Oath was beautiful. Now, um, I'm going to guess he means anybody current. Because I could list a bunch of people. Like, I'd love to see Mobius do a Doctor Strange story. Like, how cool would that be? Yeah, uh, I mean, that that would be incredible. Just going back to the Bachelor um, Aaron run that he's mentioned there. Yeah. Um, I had read a lot prior to the launch of the Bachelor run, which I think started in 2015 or late 2014, the Bachelor Aaron run. And um, a lot of reviewers and a lot of people were commenting on on how Bachelor was doing such a beautiful homage to Colin. Yep. So prior to filming or to recording this episode, I reached out to Chris Bachelor okay. to get his comments on Colin's influence on his work. And Bachelor nice. actually said that that uh, it had no influence. That it was a fluke. <laughs> Anything was indirect, um, just from what he understood of the Dark Dimension. Um, and, and in fact... The artist that had influenced his his um, Doctor Strange work was um, Michael Golden, who did five okay. issues and only five issues, which should be appearing. I'm gonna guess if they stay chronologically, should be appearing in Epic Collection five or the um, maybe the very beginning of six. It'd be somewhere right. in there, is is my bet. Um, but I thought that was interesting uh, that, that he said similarities were were not an homage, and it was interesting that there had been whole stories written about how beautifully he'd been homaging these particular issues uh, by Jim wow. Colin and Bachelot himself said he was embarrassed to have to admit that no, that wasn't the case. Oh wow! Uh, and he 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 said he loves Colin's work, uh, thinks Colin's great, but no, that wasn't uh, there was no no intentional um, reference to to this art. <laughs> so funny! Wow. Well, good to hear his comments on that for sure. I also thought it was interesting. He said their goal was to create their own world for Doctor Strange, yeah. to, to really put their own stamp on it. And I think that that would be um, key for, for any artist taking over. I think if I was going to do that, I would want Umberto Ramos. I loved his work on Out There mm. um, and on Crimson. I think it would be interesting to see what Ramos would do with uh, with with a Doctor Strange book with the right, uh, the right um, author. I don't know who the writer would be in this case, but from a visual standpoint, I'd love to see Ramos. Yeah. From current artists. I would love to see Bill Willingham and Mark Buckingham team up because they were on Fables for most of the Fables run, right? And um, and I think that they would actually do a pretty cool Doctor Strange because they already have that sort of fantasy outer world uh, vibe going on. Um, Bill Willingham is a great author. I really like his work. And Mark Buckingham is so imaginative in his illustrations. I think that they would both suit suit doctor strange well <laughs> yeah i mean there's a bunch of it's, it's hard to say at this point there's so many great 
other books out there. I mean, can you imagine what like a Mike Mignola, Doctor Strange will look like? Yeah. Um, or and, I mean, you mentioned Mobius would be so fantastic. So you could do that. I mean, if you want to go pulling people from from across time, that would. <laughs> Um, there's so many other options. I mean, um, it would have been it would have been really neat to see someone like um, like uh, um, uh, Batman, right? Neil um, Neil, Neil Adams, Adams, yeah, Neil Adams, uh, like take on a character like this and and something like that. Um, so it's tricky to say what you, what you, what you would want. I, I mean, yeah, from and current. they'd all be so different, especially coming from different eras and such. And you're right; each character does put their own like their own spin and their own take on Doctor Strange put them in their own world and we see that in these Marvel premiere issues he's battling monsters instead of battling demons and spiritual other yeah. kind of spirits and that kind of thing um, yeah I put up a Twitter poll recently and the Twitter poll question that I asked is which Doctor Strange era is your favorite and your options were the 60s the Steve Ditko Stan Lee era um, this, the 70s slash 80s, which is th this uh, this new title, the Sorcerer Supreme. Um, or sorry, when he takes over Sorcerer Supreme. And then the 90s series, which is called Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme. Or uh, or the, the most recent stuff, Aaron Bocello stuff. And uh, what's your favorite? What's your favorite era of Doctor Strange? Uh, I've I've loved the current run of Aaron Bocello. I'm not sure what's going to happen after this Marvel Legacy thing kicks in, if the, the book will continue, because I know it's going to be a new creative team. So it's hard to say, I mean, unless you want to consider their two-year run a full era. It's hard to really judge this era, because we're still in it. Right, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm a child. I was born in the 80s, but I grew up reading comics in the 90s. So I think just from nostalgic purposes, I'm going to say the 90s would be my my favorite because that's when I fell in love with comics in general, just, just most of it. So as much as some of the story arcs from, from the nineties might be, be hokey and, and gimmicky. Um, that's, those are the comics I fell in love mm -hmm. with. So I would say just from that standpoint, I'd have to say the nineties. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go with the seventies slash eighties, um, specifically because of the Steve Englehart run here. And like I said, I haven't really read any Dr. Strange, so I can't comment on like the newest stuff or, I've read some of the 90s. Um, most of Roy Thomas's run in the 90s um, when I was preparing to interview him. And I've read all of Steve Ditko's stuff, and it just, it actually wasn't my favorite, and we'll get into that when we have, whenever we discuss Volume 1 and 2. So I'm going to go with the 70s and 80s. That's fair. They're a great, uh, they're a great period. I think mm -hmm. probably um, the stories and the freedom with which the authors were able to write and the, um, make for some probably some stronger stuff not to knock on the 90s stuff i just like i said it's a nostalgic 90s piece for me a and, different time yeah and that's um that's my thing there well the the, the results of the vote were 50 percent or sorry let me start at the bottom here zero percent was for um the current series as their favorite 10 percent said the 90s 40 percent said the 70s to 80s and 50 percent of the people loved the old strange tales stuff from the 60s and that's fair it's probably yeah. i mean that's groundbreaking stuff there so i'm not surprised at the, the answer to that one mm -hmm. uh so make sure you look for our, uh, more twitter polls on our twitter feed the handle is epic marvel pod because it wasn't long enough to write they didn't allow me enough characters to write epic marvel podcast uh, twitter and <laughs> characters Let's jump into the issues here. Let's 
get started, and we're going to start with Doctor Strange issue number one, 180. It's called Eternity, Eternity. And um, this is the tail end of, or actually, yeah, this is the tail end of Roy Thomas's run on Doctor Strange. Um, he wasn't on this title for very long. And after Steve Ditko left, uh, left Marvel Comics, uh, there was a, a number of uh, creators that, uh, that, that jumped in to take over Doctor Strange, and it didn't really have a, that much of a direction. And, and then Roy Thomas took over and gave it a little bit of stability. In this issue, he, um, Nightmare has pulled people and creatures from the past to terrorize people and lures Doctor Strange into his dream dimension in order to save the world. The first thing that strikes me here is Gene Colan's art, and it, he's at the top of his game here. Um, he It's way more defined and polished and experimental than the stuff that's come before this. Uh, and um, we've run into, I've run into Gene Colan in uh, his artwork, at least not him personally, <laughs> his artwork in a number of the 90s collections that I've been reviewing recently in other episodes. And him in the 90s is not as, as great. He, um, he did a great issue of Wolverine in the 80s, but to compare that to the stuff he was doing in the 60s, it's just night and day. It's fantastic. No, I, I, I would agree. The Gene Colan, I don't know if he was just having more fun in this issue or these issues or if he had more time to, to really polish the art, um, but I think this is my favorite Gene Colan work that mm -hmm. I have encountered. I Anything so he's, he's drawn. Yeah. He was on Submariner for a while, I think, as well in the '60s. Like he was one of the guys who did him as he launched his career, and um, I, and I think paired with the right inker makes a big difference too, because I didn't like the inker that was on Submariner, made his art look a little not as as dynamic and vibrant. But whoever it is on inking in this one uh, is doing a great job. I don't remember. Maybe you can flip to the beginning of that issue for yeah, me we'll and find do out. Do that for you. Uh, Tom Palmer. Tom Palmer. Oh yeah, Tom Palmer's great. Yeah. I just love watching pterodactyls fly around in Times Square. <laughs> no to kidding. To be honest, hey. I thought that was fantastic. I loved the idea of the dimensions invading our world. I mean, I know it's something that's that we see often now, but I, I think for when this came out, that was sort of a newer idea. And uh, the idea of having all these crazy Vikings and all that running around in Times Square, just, it, you know, um, it, I think it's just fun. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move right along to issue number 181. It's called If a World Should Die Before I Wake. Um, and it's about Doctor Strange facing Nightmare. It's kind of the second part of this storyline. He, he's in the dream dimension, and he finds that uh, Nightmare for, has managed to capture Eternity, uh, which I'm sure is a an, a big feat. And then he also traps Doctor Strange inside the Eye of Agamotto. This is where we see a little bit about kind of the other... Kind of Doctor Strange is like battling himself. Go to page 37... And we can see him sort of taking on his other his sort of personalities and um, struggling with with this other Doctor Strange. That uh, I guess I'm not exactly sure of the what it is, but um, Doctor Strange, it's like this uh, this form or this force that takes over his human form to give him this superhero with the mask, this blue mask kind of personality. So I'm not sure exactly. I, I'd have to go back to the to the, the previous volume and read those issues to remember what it's what that's all about. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I couldn't uh, speak to that. Maybe you, you have a listener who's going to be able to 
to fill in on the, one of the message boards for us. And, yeah, and, that'd be great. And, or send us an email at yep. epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com. Um, one thing to note here is that um, Gene Colan really doesn't like straight borderlines. None of his panels are are you know horizontal or vertical he's always got them on an angle or he's always got these trapezoid shapes instead of rectangles and um really to add to first of all the dynamic of his his shots because he often doesn't have just steady camera shots either they're always from you know worm's eye view or um, I, I love the I love that it almost was like shattered glass or like a house of mirrors that you're walking through. It added mm-hmm. uh, to me. It, it really enhanced the mystical feel of the book where he was yep. drawing it. And anytime you go into um, another dimension, his panel layouts become even more weird. Like he really emphasizes the fact that you're in another dimension by the way he lays out his page. No, it's true. So I also like the fact that this issue ties up with... Um, with Clea and Wong watching as if they are just like us readers experiencing the story. Mm-hmm. It almost drags you into the story itself as if you are stuck in the Sanctum Sanctorum watching this unravel with right. with his uh, powerless sidekicks. So. Uh, so that brings us to 182, which is still in the Dream Dimension, and um, I'm not entirely clear why or how Kane Marco is also present, but... Uh, <laughs> well, I can speak to that one. Um, Doctor Strange had a guest appearance in an issue of Fantastic... Oh, sorry, an issue of X-Men, where they were battling Juggernaut, and the way that they found to just take care of du- Juggernaut was to bind him with the Crimson Bands of Citarac, and it trapped him in the, the Citarac gem yeah no i got that he was in the citarac gem i just wasn't sure how being in the citarac gem resulted in him being in the dream dimension with uh with nightmare uh i mean it, it doesn't take away from the end and and yeah does he speak to it being like there's you can travel through the different dimensions or something like that like he has been calling psychically calling to juggernaut to come to his to like that that nightmare has the way to get out of to to get him back to earth or something like that yeah so dr strange was trying to clue him in that nightmare is the key to getting him out of where he is so dr strange sort of goaded him into fighting nightmare uh which would release his um his psychic grip on holding eternity because right now because he's holding eternity he is uh controlling the past present and future um so Sorry, I'm getting too much into the <laughs> nitty-gritty of the it's issue all good. here. No, that's all fine. Um, I was just going to say, though, the interesting thing with this, uh, for, for people who like their sort of obscure Marvel trivia pieces, Juggernaut has only ever fought Doctor Strange um, one-on-one twice, uh, both times with Roy Thomas as the writer. So once oh, yeah. in this issue here, and, and then they didn't fight again mano-a-mano until 92. Um when Roy Thomas when was, Roy Thomas was oh, back okay. on Doctor Strange, yeah. so um, well, and is is Juggernaut a Roy Thomas creation or was Stanley still writing in that? Uh, no, I think he was. I think Stanley. I think Juggernaut, Juggernaut was created yeah. by Stanley uh, back in '65 um, on, on the X Men. I think it was one of the early X Men right. issues. I yeah. think like number ten or something like that. But uh, it's just interesting that despite the fact Juggernaut is running around the Marvel universe with one of the most powerful. Mystic, mystical uh, gems yeah items uh, only, <laughs> only one writer has ever bothered to have him and uh, go toe-to-toe with dr strange wow that, that is interesting yeah 
maybe uh, maybe that's the homage piece someone can pick up on on the new title when they take over for Jason Aaron. Um, in this issue, we get the first appearance of Doctor Strange's address, which has become, as I would say in the Marvel Universe, as well known as, you know, Sherlock Holmes's address, um, 177A Bleecker Street. And I have a little clip of Roy Thomas talking about how he came up with this address. Yeah, that was actually, it's, it's pretty amusing how yeah. he came up with these things um, at the time. Uh, that's a neat piece. I hope, I hope everyone enjoys it. We should probably play that now for them and let them hear. Definitely. Dr. Strange is a good name for a superhero, but he couldn't also have the same name Strange then as a, um, as a civilian. Right. So I had to come up with this kind of convoluted plan whereby uh, Infinity, uh, Infinity did it for him. And uh, that led to the happy accident of, uh, of my making up the address for the character, you know, because in order to show that he got this telegram that, that had, he'd seen originally addressed to Stephen Strange, and then suddenly when Infinity changed the past and present and future, uh, it was addressed to a Stephen Sanders. In order to do that, I needed an address for the, uh, for the telegram to go to, and I ended up giving it our, uh, the old address that Gary Friedrich, Bill Everett, and I had lived at for about six months in Greenwich Village, and that's become the... <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? Then that's become the address for Doctor Strange, including in the uh, in, in the, the movie, which yeah, I was you know, pleased to see they made a little homage to that. So here's where he comes up with the Stephen Sanders persona. It's actually Eternity's fault. Um, Eternity realizes that Doctor Strange, because his secret is out, I guess he's been keeping his own um, presence a secret to the general public. And I think that's partly why he's wearing a mask in these early issues here. Um, but then the word got out about Doctor Strange being real or being whatever in Manhattan. So um, Eternity rewrites history to give him this new name, Stephen Sanders. And that name didn't really last long, did it? <laughs> no. Um, one of those funny, brief aliases that gets abandoned. Yeah. Go to page 62 and 63. And there's a great double-page spread here. And it's just fantastic how it curves through the page. The background is um, the, the background is kind of... Uh, it, it's very plain, just with some like a color gradient going from yellow to, to dark red. But your eye is taken through these panels because um, Gene Colan really knows how to lay out the shape of the panels plus the, um, the, the balloons, the word balloons, guide you through where, how you're supposed to read this. And it's kind of neat. Um, yeah, no, I I like it too. It, it gave me the sense of, um, like a bridge to nowhere. It reminded me of, like walking over nothing. As you as you follow this, I know that makes sense. But visually, mm -hmm. you're following yeah. this weird sort of flowing road through the story, and it just added to that whole sense of 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 being in this other dimension. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay, so we are on issue number one eighty three, and this is kind of um, during. The previous story with Nightmare, Doctor Strange, or Wong, received a telegram for Doctor Strange, which we thought was just to illustrate the uh, the name on the, uh, the the name change that Eternity gives him. But it actually was, uh, it actually had a purpose. So inside the the note is a telegram. It beckons Doctor Strange to go help a friend, Kenneth Ward, who is very sick. And um, through, and we find out that he's sick because he uh, he found this idol, and it's kind of uh, 
released this force into his house and stuff. Um, and there is these cre- there are these creatures called the Undying Ones that are trying to catch capture the idol and get this, it away from him. This issue to me was um, really exciting. I, I think one of the great things about this epic collection, there are a lot of fantastic villains. One of our fans referenced it earlier that there's some great villains being added to the Doctor Strange Rogues Gallery, but they don't really ever come back in the Marvel Universe. They've had no. very little... Um, usage after their appearances in these issues and this is the first group the the undying ones and then we're going to see their their leader in a moment as well a nameless one that comes up in 84 or 85 as they go through this this story arc um they don't really come back the nameless one pops up briefly in 2011 in, in a in a tie into fear itself but otherwise he's not really around the undying ones come back a couple times without him but not really they don't get a lot of play no it's too bad and they're the first First set, and I'm going to keep pointing out the the awesome villains that we get in this series that we don't ever get again. Right. Yeah. Well, Doctor Strange's Rogues Gallery pretty much is only Baramordo and Dormammu. Like, there's you'd be hard pressed for to anybody to to name other people that kind of come back on a recurring basis. Yeah, which is too bad because there's some great characters here yeah. um, that wouldn't just make great foils for Doctor Strange, but would have been an interesting thing to see taking on the the Avengers or other characters in the Marvel Universe, but, but right. for whatever reason, have uh, they sit on the sidelines. Yeah. Oh, I guess Nightmare is another one I consider a reoccurring. Yeah. But he kind yeah. of pops up everywhere. It's not He's not just a Doctor Strange guy. Yeah. Um, this is the final issue of Doctor Strange's series, and then it got canceled, and we got left kind of on a cliffhanger. So... Do you have anything to say about this one? More great Gene Colan art, uh, and and there's a great flashback story when Kenneth Ward is kind of telling his tale. Uh, just some really cool stuff going on here. Um, no, it's, uh, that's right. Yeah, it wasn't into. I said eighty five, eighty six. No, it's it's into Submariner. This is where they they break off into other titles. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so Roy Thomas was also writing Submariner, and he just finished his story in other books. I, and I, I love this determination to finish your story and of leaving you yeah. hanging. And this, this kind of thing happens all the time, especially through the 70s and stuff. If the, if the, and you find it a lot in like Marvel Marvel team-up with Spider-Man. It's like I, Iron Fist got canceled after issue 15. So then uh, Chris Claremont, who was writing um, Marvel team-up, tied up the Iron Fist stories in two issues in Marvel team-up. And um, I think there is a short series called Omega the Unknown, in the 70s that got cancelled and then I think it was Steve Gerber who was writing that tied up the loose ends in a couple issues of Defenders and so this is the same thing Roy Thomas was uh, the writer for this and I think it takes a lot of thinking to tie not only tie up your loose ends but also now all of a sudden you have to incorporate the main character of this title Submariner in this case and find an actual purpose for that character, a reason for that character to be tied up in this storyline. And uh, and Thomas does a good job of actually making him relevant. Yeah, the one thing I do uh, wish we'd had a chance to see, it ends with, and next, the searchers. Uh, we don't know where they are. We never get that. Right, yeah, we don't. This is in the last issue of the Doctor Strange. Yeah, movie. Doctor yeah. Strange ends with, and next, the searchers, and we never get that piece. We get, uh, I mean, we get a, a newer version, and, and, but we don't find out what, what the searchers were going to be. No. Well, it's uh, John Wayne, and you've seen that movie. In the I, I have seen, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Actually, a John Wayne-Doctor uh, Strange crossover would have been interesting. That would have been great. 
<laughs> I don't know if Marvel would have gone away with it, but it would have been an interesting piece. Well, there's a lot of time travel that happens in Doctor Strange too, so it could happen. Yeah. Well, that, there Maybe you go. There's another hey, one uh, of the unsolved, unanswered questions in the Marvel <laughs> universe, right there. The Searchers. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so on to yeah. the Submariner issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Submariner 22, um, Monarch and the Mystic, and Doctor Strange uh, reaches out uh, mostly by necessity in real life, because as we said, uh, Thomas wanted to finish his story, uh, so he reaches out and, and brings the Submariner into um, into the story um, to finish, or to, to further the, the battle with the, un, with the Undying Ones. Yeah. So it's um, it's an interesting piece, the, the idol plays a role again, and we get this... I like the drawn-out sort of history of the idol as it goes through different time periods of, of human history, bouncing through the Middle Ages and the cavemen, and mm-hmm. and um, and we get all of that coming back to um, the the idol tempting Namor. So in the first part of this story, in the last issue of Doctor Strange, I uh, there was a twist where the the helpers who are helping. Kenneth Ward, his friends who were caring for him as sick, are actually the Undying Ones, and they, they were keeping him prisoner. And so in this issue, the same trick fooled me again, whereas there is someone, the Undying Ones were posing as people here, and um, I should have spotted it, but I didn't, <laughs> and it tricked me. Um, what I find here interesting is that Namor has a very specific knowledge of human history, Um because usually he doesn't care for human history, but he can recite dates and stuff about, like, the I think it's the Boston Tea Party or something like that. Um, but he knows he knows very specific things that I wouldn't expect him to know about. Namor is one of those interesting characters in the Marvel Universe that seems to change a little bit as necessity dictates for the books he appears in. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting that he doesn't get more love for the importance he seems to have played throughout their history. Yeah. It was it was interesting to see visually how it changes in the in the Namor book. I know that Severin Marie Severin um you know has been very successful drawing drawing Namor. Um and I, I like the underwater world of Atlantis and mm-hmm. um but I found um sort of the more simplistic She's got Paneling, a, yeah, a much more um, classic style, I guess. Yeah, I found yeah. it sort of, uh, I wouldn't say, like it's, it was disappointing in comparison to Commander, these vibrant, colorful, really exciting worlds that Colin had created. Yeah. Um, they, but, they, you know, they're effective and, and they're beautifully drawn and illustrated. It's not, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm ragging on, on, on Marie at all. It, um, it just was such a different shift right the it's you know your regular stand standard panel setup they're just boxes in in rows and and um the the backgrounds are are not as there's no motion in the backgrounds the other one you had all these weird curving lines and, and yeah well he plays a lot with shadows and such and, and shadows um, are a little bit more limited and this is this is much more straightforward yeah um but she's still mysterious. a good storyteller Oh, you know, from a story yep. standpoint, like I said, like I don't, I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm, I'm nagging on her at all. That's not the case. I, I, it was just, it was a very different um, piece. But on the other side of it, I like the fact you get to see other artists' takes on the same character. Right. Um, so. Yeah. Well, and then speaking to that, we move into the Incredible Hulk, and we have Herb Trimpey doing the artwork here, and um, again, a, another very different style. Herb Trimpey is kind of one of the old. EC kind of horror guys, and you can really see that come out in his work here. Um, and 
out of the three artists in the this three-parter story um herb trimpy is not my is probably my least favorite here but he still does dynamic work um when working on the hulk uh and yeah, this is this one's called where stalks the nightcrawler it's incredible hulk number 126 hulk versus nightcrawler but not the nightcrawler that you you think of when you think of the nightcrawler <laughs> And I this, no, and Marvel addressed that later by changing this Nightcrawler's name to to Darkcrawler. I think something like that. Something oh like yeah, the, yeah, something ridiculous later to try and clear up the confusion because they originally hyphenated this Nightcrawler's name became Night hyphen Crawler as if that was going to clear things <laughs> up for for fans. Yeah. So. Uh, in this one, is this is the third part to the story, where the servants of the Undying One send the Hulk to another to the other realm to fight strange and we get a big fight but he doesn't actually fight strange he fights this nightcrawler guy and dr strange is barely in this issue at all because it's mostly the hulk yeah no that's it's it's true it's interesting how that goes down but this one is kind of really tying up loose ends because at the very end of the issue dr strange quits magic altogether like he stops being a sorcerer at all it's just he's done um because they didn't know what to do with the character after this i guess he didn't have his own book so he's kind of just gotta gotta leave yeah he he hangs up his mask forever literally because even when he comes back he's not wearing his silly mask anymore Mm -hmm. and we have, um, I, I can't remember exactly. I think I have a clip of Roy Thomas talking about this three-parter and how it kind of led to the creation of the Defenders. Because we had no idea at this time that the fact that Roy Thomas, out of necessity, was just tying up loose ends through the other titles that he was writing, that he would unknowingly create the Defenders, Doctor Strange, the Hulk, and Submariner. Well, I like the fact that he talked about how he originally wanted Silver Surfer and Stanley was covetous and wouldn't, yep. wouldn't give up the Silver Surfer, so he took that as an opportunity to to put Doctor Strange back in the spotlight. Yep. So that's part of why Doctor Strange up in the Defenders, and um, you can hear Roy Thomas talk about that now. Mm-hmm. Even the character who failed in a book, eventually, uh, still had enough fans that they might pick up another book. Right. Uh, if he appeared in it, so it and, and at the same time, it kept him alive for, for a possible return. So we, we, whatever he, a character, you know, if his book, book or feature died, well, we kept him around doing something or other, figuring that uh, he still had some fans, and he still made a good, you know, guest star or an occasional feature. And, uh, and, and of course, by, by sheer coincidence, uh, what I was doing with Doctor Strange, putting him in the other books I was writing, like Submariner and The Hulk, ended up, uh, leading to, uh, in a way, to the uh, <laughs> to the to the defenders. Uh, defenders That's uh, right. Thing, like, you know, uh, even though, of course, you know, that 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 had two streams. One was the one of the streams to the defenders was the stories I did with the Hulk and uh, Submariner with Doctor Strange as a co-star to finish up that undying one storyline I had started with different artists in different books. And the other was the fact that I had tossed, of course. Uh, uh, what uh, Submariner, Hulk, and uh, and uh, the Silver Surfer together in another book, and uh, so Stan decided he liked he liked that idea of those three characters, but he didn't like the idea of using of me using the Silver Surfer as one of them because he really didn't like anybody else to write the Silver Surfer at that stage except him. Right. He'd given me special dispensation to use uh, 
the Silver Surfer in those couple of stories, uh, just as he had once with uh, Spider-Man in, in the X-Men. But he didn't really want me to be able to be writing the Silver Surfer in a regular book. So he made me take the Silver Surfer out and uh, said we should use Doctor Strange instead, which seemed like a, an interesting idea. And I think it actually, in a lot of ways, it probably worked better because Doctor Strange was much more of a team leader. Uh, while with the other three guys, well, they'd all want to be the leaders, but nobody would want to be the followers. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, so, I, so I think that uh, the, the mix in the Defenders became a, you know, a pretty good one there. And mm-hmm. uh, then, of course, Doctor Strange soon got his own book back anyway. Hey, you want to take us through Marvel feature number one? So, yeah, Marvel feature number one is bringing us the Defenders, and it's a great issue where, I mean... We Dr. don't Strange. actually have the Defenders story in this one. We only have the backup story that deals with Doctor Strange. Um, no, it's true. You don't. But yet, here's, here's this Doctor Strange... Um, I mean, you can really see the effort to bring Doctor Strange back into the Marvel Universe. So we don't get the Defenders piece, but you get the backup story... Um, by Roy Thomas, and it's it's an interesting sort of sh- brief little look at Doctor Strange reclaiming his mantle as as Doctor Strange, um, and he battles himself like it's it's sort of him battling his inner demons almost, yeah. in, in that he is battling this silly masked Doctor Strange creature, which turns out to be Baron Mordo impersonating Doctor Strange, but yeah. it, it um, but does what um, it needs to do to yeah. set him back on the right track and get him back using magic again. Yep. Yeah, there's not a whole lot to say about this one, but, um, I mean, Don Heck, this, this is his only Doctor Strange work, um, and I'm not a huge Don Heck fan in general, uh, and this one is just kind of, it reminds me a lot of, of um, I think he tries to do his best Steve Ditko impersonation here. Yeah, that's fair. Yep. Yeah, that's okay. I, I mean, it's it's passable. Yeah. It's. I think that's tricky for an artist to come on to something that brief. You don't have a chance to really put your stamp on it, and you're trying to fit into the the oeuvre of the the character. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that he does here is that he um, specifically drops the Stephen Sanders name as well and returns back to being Stephen Strange. Yeah, which is so crushing because I had become so attached to Stephen <laughs> Sanders in the three issues that it existed. I know. Whatever happened to Stephen Sanders? All of his friends. All these will get his mail back. They'll, the mail will bounce back, and uh, they'll be like, "How come? Whatever happened to that guy?" Yeah, no, it's it's um, it's true that that will be the next big question. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so now we have Marvel Premiere number three. So here is um, the very first issue of Doctor Strange back into his own regular monthly title, and. Um, Pull up the credits for me here. Who, who's it's Barry Windsor Smith. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's a it's a Stanley scenario, which it's a thing that we see a lot through the Marvel Universe where Stanley had, you know, scribbled down plot ideas and yep. they were sitting in some vault and and so people would pluck those and and flesh them out. We saw that in, in the the Thor run when he randomly fights right. the Hulk because we need yeah. to fill some space and, <laughs> and you've seen that again here, sort of they've they pulled but a, a Stanley scenario. And Barry Windsor Smith, who is both illustrating it and plotting it, he fleshes this out and um, runs with it. And it it also introduces a really new tone to Doctor Strange. Like Barry Barry Windsor Smith's take on the character visually um, is so different from Colin's. So in this issue, there is some evil magical force that is pursuing Doctor Strange, and it turns out to be Nightmare. Spoiler alert! <laughs> it's just a um, 
he's back. Nightmare is back. And I guess what better way to introduce, reintroduce Doctor Strange than pair him up with um, a villain that we're already familiar with. So that's kind of fun. Um, yeah, beautiful art by Barry Windsor Smith. Like, this guy is just fantastic. He's always great. Yeah, no, it uh, it, it helps. It. You can tell that he really, um, he was in sync with his writer. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Um, do you want to carry on here? Um, yeah, so we get Marvel premiere number four, and it's just a continuation. Uh, Barry Windsor Smith continues his run um, here. He's only the artist, though. He's he and he shares artistic duties with Brunner. So it's interesting because he does. He's such a brief brief run, and um, Archie Goodwin has taken over his writing. So so um, yeah, it, it just it, they they seem to be fleshing out the creative team a bit on this. So this is the, the spawn of Sligeth. I think it's Sligeth. Is Sligeth, that, yeah, that's how yeah. I've been saying it, too. Um, Marvel really just put out a dictionary for how to pronounce uh, some of these pieces. <laughs> yeah. It should be in the back. There should be an appendix. So this guy, Ethan Stoddard, shows up and asks Doctor Strange for help because his fiance is has went to back home, I guess, to, to this small town. And um, it's called Starksboro. And uh, apparently she he hasn't really heard from her. She won't come back. Um, we find that the town, this is, uh, I love it. it, there's a slow reveal about all of the creepy stuff that's happening in this town. Um, and we find out that the whole town is part of this giant cult. It reminded me of an X-Files episode. Oh, oh yeah. There's, there are, yeah. It's definitely um, a concept that's kind of used over and over again. Um, but this is my single most favorite episode or issue in this volume there's a there's a story that i like better than this one but um as far as single issue stories go i like this one the best archie goodwin is just fantastic i loved the mystery and dr strange having to go through the town and figure out little things bit by bit um it was just really really well done um unfortunately i can't say the rest that about the rest of the issues in this story because i just absolutely didn't like them you, you didn't <laughs> en- we'll you, be- we'll you get- didn't enjoy lurker in the labyrinth no right? we'll we'll get into that in a little bit but let's talk a little bit more about this one um one thing to note in the very first page um or maybe it's the cover i can't remember it says that this is based on concepts by robert e howard and for those of you who aren't familiar with that name he's the guy that created conan the barbarian but he also did a lot of kind of the Lovecraftian sort of stories with these, with these monsters and, and you know, villages under, under cult rule and that kind of stuff. And this particular story, it draws heavily on a story called The Children of the Night from 1931 about a small town cult, cult of snake people. And it is sort of part of the Cthulhu mythology. But uh, Robert E. Howard and and, uh, H.P. Lovecraft were actually friends and did a lot of writing and uh, created sort of a shared universe between their two stories and novels and that kind of stuff. Kind of what Marvel does now with their movies and and such. Yes. But that was kind of the early part of that. And uh, and so there's a lot of that influence here in this little run of Marvel premiere stories. So I I like the fact it, it... it sometimes it felt a little bit disjointed, but I like the fact that it was different writers fooling through. So you go from, you get Barry Windsor Smith, and then you get Archie Goodwin, Archie Goodwin, and then you get um, Gardner Fox. And you say, I like the fact that it's it's one plot. Um, and yeah, it was disjointed a little bit, but it was interesting at the same time to see how that worked. 
there's a new book out right now called Commandy Challenge, which is actually a also an old book where um, one writer would write one issue and leave it a cliffhanger, and then hand the next issue he handed off to another art another writer to completely take it in whatever direction they yep. want. And each issue goes along that. So it's kind of like kind of like that here too. I don't know how much of a direction and overall direction they had, but I can't imagine that the plots that Gardner Fox is working with are the same ones that um, like are going in the same direction as Barry Windsor Smith was going with the, that first issue. No, I don't, uh, I don't think so, but you're, you're right. Cause he's picked up. I mean, the, the previous issue that Archie left off, Dr. Strange is about to be sacrificed by some creepy kid. And we, we pick up and it's now Gardner Fox, but Dr. Strange is still chained to a table about to be sacrificed. Yeah. Um, by what now looks like odd sort of, not monkey children so much as I'm not really sure how to describe them anymore. Just well, there's there's snake, there's kind of reptile people or something like that. Yeah, no, they just don't look like kids anymore. Is what I mean. Oh yeah, right. So yeah, so he um, he's captured and he now he I guess he's a sacrifice and he has to face off against Sligoth, which is this giant lizard creature. But he he can't use magic. I guess the magic there is this spell that's been put around the town that is that is made it so that he cannot cast any spells or anything like that. So now he actually has to rely on his own wit in order to get him out of this situation. But I hear again Sligeth, another one of those great new rogues that only shows up once. <laughs> right. Um, so like I said, this was quite of a letdown of an issue. We had such a great dynamic pacing, the dialogue and everything from Archie Goodwin. And then we have Gardner Fox. And I need to uh, read a few things, a few excerpts here to illustrate my point about um, Gardner Fox's writing. Now, he's an old school guy from the golden age. And I think you can really tell from his style of writing and dialogue that he's from the golden age. His biggest thing is that he can't let the artwork speak for itself. He has to dialogue his way through everything. And so on page 197, um, the Ancient One actually gets uh, kidnapped by the Undying Ones. And he's almost dying and they're carrying him away, but he's still talking and saying things like, I cannot resist them. Their cold, cruel hands fasten on my weakened body. They lift it easily. <laughs> They carried me off to work their wicked wills on helpless flesh. Um, like, yeah, we can see what's happening here. You don't have to tell us that exactly in your, you, you know, your dying breath. <laughs> there is just, uh, there's just examples like that that happened throughout all of these Gardner Fox issues that made it for really clunky kind of reading, clunky dialogue, um, which for me, when I was reading these, I think these three issues probably took me close to two weeks to get through because I would pick up a page and get bored with it or just like not interested and put it down. And, and like I had to really force myself to finish these, these issues. I'd it's funny. I, I like the, the goofy old school um, yeah. overwriting. I mean, it, it is overwritten, but I, I, I liked it. It, did, it was a bit time consuming going through it all. Um, and it does distract sometimes from from the visuals. Yeah. Um, but I like that. Like I said, I, I like the uh, the fact we were bouncing through these different writers, and I um, I appreciated the goofy narrative that was added into these these issues by Gardner Fox. I mean, that said, I, I still I would agree that probably they were three of the less exciting 
parts of this overall series, but I um, I don't have that same complaint. I like the I like those funny commentaries that he was adding in. Well, I think the other thing that worked against this issue was that the art I thought was a little lacking as well. I mean, we're coming off some great stuff from Barry Windsor Smith, and we get art by. Irv Wesley, which is actually a pseudonym for this other guy, Sam Queskin. Um, and it's just not as not as strong as as what we have seen in, in the previous issue. Which I think probably is part of why I appreciated the um, the narrative uh, pieces to enhance, To help it along, yeah. Could that. Be. <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's a tough spot for, for any artist to come in um following that that Barry Winchester Smith I mean it was one and a half issues of of beautiful work by Barry Winchester Smith yeah. and keep in mind we're also looking at this in a collection that involved Gene Colan at his very best yeah um, and, and then followed this, up by Frank Brunner <laughs> yeah like you're sandwiched in between some great legendary artists mm-hmm. um which I don't know if we'd read these issues on their own when they weren't part of this boxed in peace you might have a different perspective on it yeah i'm also pretty sure that this one was probably done super quick as well and part of the interview with steve talks about how he wanted frank brunner to do these issues but frank brunner refused to work with gardner fox and so i'll play that clip here then they gave it to gardner fox um roy had an affection as do i you know and uh, for the people who came before us um, I must say at the time, I thought maybe Gardner had, had sort of lost a step, but Roy gave him Dr. Strange. And, uh, I think there were, I can't remember whether Brunner started on it immediately, but Brunner got onto it and he was not thrilled with Gardner Fox's work. And so apparently he went to Roy and he said, you know, I would really like to have Steve Englehart write this thing. Um, we were all young, Brunner and I, and Starlin and other people were all young guys working side by side in the comic book industry, you know, making our way in New York, et cetera, at the time. So Brunner knew my stuff. I hadn't done anything with him, but he knew my stuff. And apparently he requested me specifically. So they came to me and said, like, you'd write this book. And as you said, I was writing, I had a full complement of books. I was doing four books a month. Um, the ones you mentioned, and I might have been still doing Luke Cage, and I might have been doing—I don't remember—but I had a, like I the, had a full slate. I think slate. the Defenders around that time as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I looked at it and I said, "Well, okay, it's a bi-monthly book, which means we counted them as like half a book then per month. Uh, so, could I go from four to four and a half? And I decided." A, that I could, and B, that I wanted to, because I did like Doctor Strange and, and was interested in working with Brunner and, and all that good stuff. So um, that's how I got there. Um, go to page 205. I just think that here's another example of the dialogue that didn't need to be there. Um, it's either like that one was necessary to explain because the artwork isn't as clear. This is where I appreciate it. I actually wouldn't have, I mean... You cannot tell from that the image yeah. that the water is filling the cavern. Yeah, I guess. So, but then I wonder because you, you, we've we've heard that Brunner didn't want to work with um, with Gardner Fox. With Gardner. So um, I wonder if 
that was also the case here where where um, the artist was like, yeah, you know what, he's just going to stick his own information in my panels. Yeah, that could be. Yep. So in Marvel premiere number six, the Shambler from the Sea, Doctor Strange, his, his battle with Sligeth uh, takes to the sea and we get uh, where, where he finds another monster. And here, the next few issues are just a string of different monsters that he has to face. And so this one is... Uh, the Shambler, which is the real name is Ngabothoth, Ngabthoth, something like that. Yep. And uh, yeah, this one, th- this one, who's the artist on this one here? This one's Brunner. I mean, he did end up working with Gardner Fox. This is Brunner and Bashema working together. I don't uh, yeah. know how much, who did how, who did what, but. I think um, Bushema was his inker for this one. Um, and I think I read on his Facebook page that it was at least this the first five pages he inked, and I think maybe that was it. Frank Brunner did the rest of them, but I can't remember. But this is another uh, Robert E. Howard plot or concept. Right. Yeah. And well, and the the Shambler itself looks very much like a like a Cthulhu kind of creature. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's he's almost like. A, I don't know how to describe him. Like a He's close enough that they're not infringing on any trademarks. Yeah, that's right. They're <laughs> different yeah. enough that he's, they're not infringing. Different yeah. enough, yes, that's right. Um, I love on page 214, there's this this uh, 70s feel to the artwork. Um, through the colors and the fonts, it's like if you look at uh, the bottom tier of... Slosh, splash, slosh, yeah, splash. Yeah, just the font that they're using there and the solid reds. And it's just, it, this really feels 70s to me. And I really like it. Yeah, no, that's that's true. It's um, It almost has the feel of a Conan book. Yeah. 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 Which I guess makes sense since it's a, a Howard. Robert E. Concept. Howard. Well, and Roy Thomas was the premier writer for, for Conan for years. Yes. Uh, and so if he's editing this, he's probably giving a little bit of influence there as well. Doctor Strange gets a little help from the Ancient One here, just to remind us that the Ancient One is still alive. Ish. For a little while. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we can probably move right into Marvel Premiere number seven, which is called The Shadow of the Starstone. Um, and again, you get a new artist in Craig Russell. Which is, uh, you know, you were talking about dream teams. I, I, if you if you had asked me, I would have wanted Craig Russell as yep. a run on, on Doctor Strange. But then reading this one, um, it's not what I would have hoped for. It was interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, and Craig, it's Craig P. Russell. I think he goes by often, right? P. P. Uh, yeah, P. Or P. P. Craig, Craig Russell. Russell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he does a lot of fantasy stuff, and like he he would be a shoe in for this kind of thing. But and I wonder again. If um, this was just kind of a last-minute rush job because of the the stuff that Frank Brunner was saying about Gardner Fox, like I wonder how much notice he gave um, he gave Roy Thomas. Yeah, well, the editor, I don't think it helps. That there's person. three inkers either. I think that doesn't help the uh, book. Because that is a sure sign that this was a rush job. That um, that um, if you have to put this many inkers to just kind of get it out fast. Yeah. Then that's a sure sign that this this book was probably so, late. And so I guess going back to that dream team question, uh, maybe seeing uh, Peter Russell get a, a longer run, yeah. with more time to flesh out his his art, that might be, have actually been good. Would be exciting. I mean, yeah. Wow. So in this one, we get a map that leads Doctor Strange to England, where he finds 
Dagoth of um, Calamesh. Calamesh. <laughs> um, and there, there are some cool things in this one, like the, the, the house, the haunted house, I guess, that's kind of going all over the place. Yeah, I didn't make very many notes on these issues just because I didn't really care for them a whole lot. But do you have anything to say here? No, I mean, it was another monster uh, fight. And it was fun. Um, but like I said, I just I had I, I had hoped for more from, from Craig Russell drawing Doctor Strange. Mm -hmm. In fact, it would be interesting to talk to Craig Russell about that. I'm going to... Uh, maybe we should try and track him down and yeah. see what he says about his one issue. <laughs> if he remembers it even. <laughs> yeah. Because we're talking like 40, 40 years ago, 45 years ago. Yeah, it's ago. been a while. Yeah. A single issue that he rushed on. He might not yep. even pay, remember that at all. Okay, well, we can keep, keep on going then. Marvel premiere number eight. Jim Starlin. Yeah. Jim Starlin is now in the book. The yeah. Doom That Bloomed in Kalithos. Cal, no, Cathulos. <laughs> um, yeah, a doorway in Stonehenge. This is the map that Doctor Strange got in the previous issue now led him to Stonehenge, which is apparently a nexus of, of uh, different dimensions. So you can travel through this portal, through the stone structure that lead, led him to um, Cathulos, which is a living planet. Yes, yeah. Um, this is an interesting... The, um, run here I, I, like i liked this one i know you said you were speeding through them i liked this issue in this sort of chunk of issues best not to say it was yeah. like of the the marvel premiere the um books not not in the overall volume mm -hmm. um i think i liked the gene colon um battling nightmare in the in the dream dimension and there's later issues uh with um Cisneg and silver dagger they like better but from this little chunk of one-off sort of this like kill all monsters strategy that they had going for a bit there i think i like this one best of those yeah yeah well and and jim starlin definitely helps with that and i wonder how much influence jim starlin himself had on the plot here because of course he's going to do this issue where dr strange goes to outer space because that's kind of jim's thing isn't it outer space <laughs> yes yeah I mean, that's that's why we read a Jim Starlin book, is, yep. is for that reason. So I wonder if um, Gardner Fox was like, I'm going to take Doctor Strange to space. I want Jim Starlin to do the art. Or was it, oh, we have Jim Starlin doing the art. I want to, I, maybe I should make Doctor Strange go to outer space. Yeah, no, that's, that's those are interesting observations. Uh, one other thing with this, this issue here um as a new sort of visual take on Clea a little bit her hair's a little different and her costume's a little bit different mm. um and i only mention that because um famously or, or well not famously but but previously uh bendis who's sort of become the the overseer of the marvel plotting for most of the last decade like commented that he um he couldn't take the character Clea seriously because of the pants she's wearing and it starts here in these weird <laughs> pants. Yeah. So he he pointed out that she was one of the more powerful characters in the universe but she couldn't be taken seriously because of her pants. So from this period forward you can you can look at Jim Starlin's fashion design on Clea. Okay. And you can see how that has reverberated forward to affect the opinion of one of Marvel's more um uh, influential writers. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that they mention the pants because in this first page of Marvel Premiere number eight, her her leggings are are red and they have these lines on them. 
it reminds me a lot of Alex Ross's new redesign of Spider-Man's new costume. How it has, it's not webbing anymore. It's this kind of cross, this, um, this, this cross-hatched kind of pattern on his, on his costume. Yes. Yeah. So Clea looks like that. So if Bendis didn't like Clea's pants here, then does he, what does he think about Spider-Man's current costume? I don't know. Well, my opinion, though, on Gardner Fox still remains this, this one has some incredibly clunky dialogue um, to go along with, with the artwork. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call Gardner Fox my favorite writer. I just personally didn't have as much, take as much um, <laughs> umbrage with, uh, with some of his, his narration as, as you did. Right. Um, well, I do think that on an issue like this, it was more distracting because the visuals were that much more... Um, impressive, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I didn't. I, I didn't think it was terrible, and I. I. I still love those old, random, ridiculous, uh, hyperbolic um, alliteration and, and assonance. You know, pieces. and I like those too in the '60s or, the, or earlier. But by the '70s, when we have people like Steve Englehart who are taking comics to new dimensions, new new heights. Um, the, there's the place, it just seems out of place. To be fair, though, I mean, Starlin is such a beautiful job of this. You could remove the dialogue, and I think it would still be enjoyable. Totally. I mean, the just the illustrations um, are, are so vibrant and yeah. active, uh, and I think this is the best Doctor Strange looks since Gene Colan left, and that's not even a knock on. Like, I really appreciated Brunner's piece that we saw here, and we see Brunner again after, but mm. just if you take it in, in chronological order. Yeah, yeah. Um, Barry Winter Smith was was gorgeous, like we said, but I, I think this was the best it's looked. And I think part of that uh, played into an advantage for Starlin because they let Starlin take Doctor Strange into space and then onto these new worlds, so they allowed him to go where he is totally. at his best. But yeah. it was still great to see. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the thing, the, the very final page of this issue is just so much exposition to tie up the storyline it was like they didn't have enough pages it to they, they could have used one more issue or something like that well or yeah i mean it's true it, it that it is a little bit dialogue heavy at the end i'll yep. give you that yeah okay marvel premiere number nine yep. what's this one called the crypts of uh Ka-oo. yeah this one is uh doctor strange somehow finds his way back to earth (laughs) and it's like thanks gardner fox for leaving me in this place because this is steve englehart's first issue with with steve brunner and it's like yeah thanks a lot now i have to figure out a way to get him from this unknown planet on the other side of the universe back to earth uh and so the way he does it i find is a little ridiculous but i mean what else are you gonna do right i you know i agree i thought standalone it was a little bit disappointing because of that the whole arc of him i don't know the whole adventure back to earth it was it was silly yeah um and actually it left me a little bit concerned for what i was going to read going forward <laughs> yeah from Angleheart. um but then hearing your Angleheart interview where he talks a little bit about wanting to be back on earth and realizing the necessity of of getting Doctor Strange back to Earth for what he wanted to do with the character, yeah, um, I get that, and I guess I mean we've we've given artists a pass for having to rush their art, and I guess in this case he was rushing through a necessary plot. Yep, yep. This first issue was just to get him to the place where he wanted to actually start his own story. Uh, do you have anything more to say about this issue? 
No, there's not a lot yeah. to be said about that yeah. issue. I mean, it's an issue that I would recommend reading because it's in the collection, but I, I wouldn't really recommend as a, as a whole. Um, you want to take us to, through number 10? So we get Shumagorath, where this is a, this is um, Doctor Strange, um, finally Shumagorath. I mean, that's the title of the, the story, and that's what you can say about it, too. And it's it's really Engelhart and Bruner now on the book. Like, they are now establishing themselves on the book, and it gives you this great um, sense of where they want to go with this mystical piece, and they really want to focus on the sort of the mystical witchcraft occult aspect of the book and i think that brunner does this great job of truly establishing himself as a doctor strange artist in this book while still bringing in some of the better pieces from previous artists mm -hmm. yeah yeah he does yeah. and you can see i feel like there's a lot of gene colon influence in like his panel design his layouts i mean and and that kind of thing um, there's one thing to note. The inker for this issue is Krusty Bunkers. And Krusty Bunkers isn't an actual person. It is um, just a bunch of people. Marvel had to bring in people from Neil Adams Continuity Studios in order to do to get the inking done on time, I guess, or something like that. Um, so there's an unknown amount of inkers doing this issue here. And from what I understand, Brunner was a very slow artist. He uh, he take he has a lot of detail and puts so much effort into every single panel in every single page that he draws. Yes. Um, but that slowed him down immensely. So later on, we'll see that there are reprint issues because they needed to give Brunner time to uh, to catch up. Now this this yeah. one's key. This is um, this is the end of the. I mean, this is where he is now. Doctor Strange is now the Sorcerer Supreme. In yes, this book. we see the end. This of is the transition, the ancient one. So yeah, this is a very very important issue for for Doctor Strange, and um, I mean, this is the thing. This happens in the Doctor Strange movie, not exactly this way, but um, the movie wanted to rush him rush him into being the Sorcerer Supreme, so. They got rid of the ancient one kind of right away. Yeah, I mean, but it also, it, I mean, that's true. I am in, do, in the movie Doctor Strange doesn't doesn't inadvertently kill the ancient one. So, right. Yeah, um, that is an interesting part here. Is that he kind of had to kill the ancient one to yes. to save reality. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it was an it was an issue, and I mean, you can see they were speeding to somewhere they wanted to go. Yep. So you get this: we had to get back to Earth quickly. And then we wanted to get the ancient one out of the way, and we really wanted to establish Doctor Strange as the source of Supreme. And Engelhart talks about that too. Um, if you want to play that clip for yeah. everybody, it gives him a real chance to to see Engelhart's thinking. And I think it is too bad that he didn't get to follow through more on the Doctor Strange book because mm -hmm. he had some pretty neat ideas, it seems, and and some pretty big concepts he wanted to explore. And it begins here where he's like, okay, Doctor Strange should be the Sorcerer Supreme, not just the Master of the Mystic Arts anymore, but he's the Sorcerer Supreme on the planet Earth. Yeah. There were things throughout my, you know, time at Marvel and DC for that matter, but where it seemed like plot lines had sort of stalled out um you know and then i got on board and i i probably said in the last podcast that i don't like to just sort of walk in and go wow i'm here now everything's different um because it's me but i thought okay he's been the apprentice for years and years and years now so it would be nice if he showed some uh, of course yeah so, 
Um, yeah. So I, you know, when I say I don't want everything, I don't want to walk in and change everything. I don't want to like suddenly, you know, have him move to Cleveland and become a car dealer. But I, but I, you know, <laughs> if I can take something that's there and move it one step forward, that's good, you know. And and if I think he should be six steps forward, then I might take six issues to do that. But I'm always interested in the journey rather than just you know the results. So anyway, uh, I thought time for him to to move up in the ranks. Mm-hmm. And and the ancient one, you know, the ancient one had been around for a long time, but. All he did was be the ancient one. I mean, he he. There had been some really nice stories during the Ditko days, you know, where the ancient one was actually a, an action figure. But but generally he wasn't. So I thought, well, we won't we won't be too upset if he if he, if he goes away. And yeah. then and then of course he didn't really go away. He just became one with the universe. So you know. right. Well, let's keep on going here. Marvel Premiere number eleven is a reprint. And we have, um, there is just like an intro page and an outro page for this issue that Brunner and gets to draw. But the, the rest of the contents are reprints of Strange Tales, number 115 and number 117. These these issue pages 311 to 315, uh, or sorry, to three, uh, 313, sorry, those are only three pages. Those are the ones that were excluded in previous collections. Right, which I understand because they, Nothing really happens. they just frame the reprint issue. I'm glad that they're included here. Like, that's that's great. Yes. Um, it's kind of yeah. like a little bonus feature. Yep. But uh, moving on to Marvel Premiere number 12. And uh, Doctor Strange is now in the desert, and he's uh, he's being rescued. And, and this is the one where they established that Clea is going to go back to being mystical. Because if you, people forget, or you don't have any reference to it in this book, she was a mystical being in the the dream dimension, in the dark dimension, yeah. when Doctor Strange first encountered her. She helped him defeat um, Dormammu. She she helped. Um, she was rescued by the Ancient One. She was an ally, a powerful ally at one point. But through this collection, she is stripped of her power. She's a bit naive. She's finding her way on Earth. And this is a key book because Doctor Strange, now being the Sorcerer Supreme, decides to go with Clea as his apprentice who will uh, presumably replace him one day. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an interesting book. So this is the beginning of her um, her being included as um, as an ally, not just as a love interest. So it's a it's an interesting step in her evolution, and it's done pretty quickly. I also love the um, I love just the little things they talk about. How he's he's now sort of operating. He's forgotten what it's like to be human, and they're trying to reground him, so he forgets that he needs to return a rental car. <laughs> I love that <laughs> yeah. inclusion. Yeah, totally. Um, but from a, from a standpoint, you get those little pieces. But really, this one this issue picks up on, on page three twenty two. It, it's about six pages in. Strange decides he needs to try and and make peace with Dor- with uh, Baron Mordo. And yeah, um, the story goes, cool. the story goes from there, and it's this funny town. And he goes, and he instead he ends up uh, fighting and being enslaved by some gypsies who also have a feud with with Mordo. And it's weird that that they're mad at Mordo, but rather than just being his ally, decide to make him their slave to fight Mordo. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It seems like a odd well, approach. And like, really, Doctor Strange is going to get caught off guard by and be hypnotized? I I was like, I don't. I think he's. Uh, he he's a little especially being sorcerer supreme he'd he'd be a little bit more on guard <laughs> than that really caught him off guard but uh um yeah this issue really is after for myself after those marvel premiere issues that i just didn't have fun with this was 
quite refreshing. The, the pacing's great, the story's interesting, the art is fantastic, and it just uh, it picks up from here. And this is the beginning of my favorite storyline in this book. This uh, Yeah, the Cisneg story was fantastic. And, but there's, again, this fantastic character that we don't encounter again. He shows up once more in all of the Marvel Universe in a what-if story. That's it. Oh, yeah. Well, I can understand, based on the ending, which we'll get to in a little issue, why we don't ever uh, see well, him I, I get again. that piece, but there's so many time travel stories in the Marvel Universe right. that there could have been... He would, yeah, you'd think he'd pop up here or there. And we know he can't... I mean, his origin uh, being from well into the future, there was opportunities to bring back Cisnake because he travels back through time. True. So That's true. Um, but, I mean, to each their own. And, and Marvel has chosen not to re-explore this, this character. Um, Marvel premiere number 13 is called Time Doom. And Doctor Strange follows Mordo through, times, t- through time and meets uh, Cagliostro um, in... Uh, around 1780 and this guy is a he's a real guy i think a real a real person from history right yeah i believe so i'm not i haven't really mastered my occult history um lessons base i believe cagliostro is an actual um historical figure i think he was um but i'm not i'm not sure about that but the concept here is that there is an infinite amount of mystical energy in the universe that's finite or, uh, sorry, um, a finite amount. Uh, yeah, that's very important. <laughs> there is a finite amount of mystical energy in in existence. And um, because throughout time, more, there are more and more mystical people or sorcerers or wizards or whatever, um, more of this energy is getting taken up. So this guy, Cagliostro, is really um, a guy named Sisineg, who has been traveling back through time he's from the 31st century where there's pretty much no mystical energy but he's traveling back in time gathering there's there's, he talks about it there's everybody has mystical energy everybody in the future he says uses magic and so there's limited magic per person that's what i mean is like there's no extra um mystical energy available for him because everybody has it for themselves so he goes back in time to where there's not as many sorcerers so that he can tap into all of like he has so much access to all of this mystical energy and the further back and further back he goes in time the more and more mystical energy is at his disposal so knowing this um and mordo mordo kind of acts like a buffoon through this one is like sees this guy as some sort of um um guy that he wants to align with and and like throws himself at him well i think he i think he's selling his soul to the devil and it's not a first or a last time mordo's going to do that right. and mordo uh, i mean i think you see here that mordo is um he just wants to he wants to be as close to power as he can and if yep. he's not going to be most powerful then he's willing to be the the servant or the slave to the the most powerful being right um i don't know it's an interesting take on mordo but i like the fact that like this is the first reference cagliostro was a was a real magician an italian guy i don't know how successful he actually was with his magic versus tricking people and thinking it was magic but he was an actual historical figure i like the random references to to real life things that engelhart incorporated into his book there's a reference later to einstein and there's religious references throughout this as well and I, I like these 
Um, well, and not in this collection, but in the, in volume four, we'll meet Ben Franklin and that kind of thing. So yeah, like, yeah, it's pretty cool. He does that a lot. Yeah, he really played on a different aspect of the Doctor Strange mythos. So, so in Marvel premiere number fourteen, this one's called Sisineg Genesis. This issue just blew my mind. It uh, it was actually fascinating it's I, the best book in this or I, best story in this book i thought it was collection. just such a concept that was just brilliant absolutely brilliant um and so we'll spoil it for you here if you haven't read it go and read it but we're assuming you have read it um dr strange and mordo follow sisineg back to the cretaceous period like 66 million years ago is where there's so much energy that sisineg event essentially has as much power as a god and he goes back further and further in time to the 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 big bang and there is just he is the only person who has all access to all this mystic energy and he realizes that he that his concept is all wrong instead of using this um to gain control and gain power he uses it now to create and he essentially becomes god or the christian form of god and create the big bang is the creation of the universe and he goes and um he essentially the biblical god that we know is sisineg and he is like just um i'm not explaining this very well yeah i mean well when you look at those sisineg is is just genesis backwards like he is the yeah, beginning he's the beginning it's just uh um, it's just an interesting re it's, a very interesting uh, it's an interesting way to tie in the, the biblical origin of the universe to a doctor strange story and because the biblical the biblical origin of the universe is sort of like the beginning of history and um and god being the creator of all of that the beginning of history and being a benevolent person throughout all of this uh and, and having sisineg be this guy who's from the far future who's traveled back and now is the creator of the universe it's this huge paradox yeah well and it's interesting that we tied religious origin with scientific origin right which is still a debate today yeah but you know here you are in a comic book from the 70s and that doesn't even really matter it's like yeah let's combine those things to tell a cool story i yep. think it was quite a brilliant it's move. interesting the almost controversy around this though this issue um and um you have a great discussion <laughs> yeah. with Engelhart about this that i think you should play here definitely um, i will definitely play that here we didn't have any editorial oversight i mean i mean we had oversight but no interference really i mean everything you wanted to do if it would sell and you turned it in on time you could do it nevertheless there were things that stan um coming from an earlier era if i may say but i mean he you know he he had a pretty good mass market at least the mass market through the 40s 50s and 60s whether that was still the mass market in the 70s was debatable and we heard from new york that stan might want to put a note in a future issue of dr strange saying that wasn't really god you know <laughs> yeah uh, right just not to uh, offend any of the, the yeah, christians out there Exactly, exactly, yeah. you know. And so, being young creative guys, you know, making our way in the industry, we and and given create, creative freedom, we weren't anxious to have anybody say anything that would impinge upon that. 
Um, so this was happening right around Christmas time, and I live in California, but I was going to Indiana, where my family was and is for Christmas, and I was going to change planes in Dallas. So I wrote a letter, dear Mr. Lee, you know, want to thank you so much for this beautiful issue, you know, that so inspiring, you know, whatever, and signed it by being signed it as some reverend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with an with an address in Dallas and then I dropped it in the mailbox when I was in Dallas and and uh according to New York Stan got this letter and thought, "Oh good, well people like this." And then that was the end of that. <laughs> okay. So here. So, and as Engelhart just mentions in that dialogue then, um you really you can you can see the hilarious hilarious um Concerned that the old school writers team would have had a Marvel versus Engler, who's very sort of um, almost dismissive of the whole controversy. <laughs> yep. Um, but his solution, I think, is so brilliantly hilarious. So good. Um, and the fact that that just that does it, like as if one person, one person's letter. Oh, never mind. We're good because one random guy. <laughs> I guess it didn't offend people after all. <laughs> Isn't offended. Yeah. Uh, it's like the it's the opposite. Is the the vocal minority for good? Yeah. So. Pretty good. Yeah. So this is the final Doctor Strange issue in Marvel premiere. He had um, the 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 ratings for his, his these these issues that he's in um, have been good enough that now he's being spun off into his own book. And so back Marvel into his own book, yeah. back into his own book, yeah. And so Marvel premiere number fifteen is the very first appearance of Iron Fist. And so if you want to follow um, the Marvel premiere issues, you can hear me talk about them in in the Iron Fist um, episode that we did recently. But now it's Doctor Strange issue number one, and it's not it's doesn't feel like a first issue because he's basically just continuing the story that he started in Marvel premiere. But it's uh, it's uh, it's Steve Englehart and Frank Brunner doing their thing. And one more great new villain that we haven't previously seen, um, and we don't see again in Silver Dagger. Silver Dagger, yeah, this guy was kind of a weird villain because he's not. Um, He's not really like him. Him as a villain is kind of he's kind of a little, a little bit of a goofball. Um, he's got like an ego, and he manages to trap Doctor Strange. But then the adventure, the rest of the adventure, is Doctor Strange not really battling Silver Dagger. Like Silver Dagger's not that that much of a threat. No, he's not. Uh, it's funny, though, um, Strange says to Silver Dagger, you know, reading books doesn't make you the master of the mystic arts or something like that, which that was funny because if you listen to Engelhart, he says the same thing about himself. <laughs> <laughs> so having heard Engelhart reference that, I reread this picturing Silver Dagger as um, Engelhart or Engelhart as Silver Dagger. Um, who sets a lot of things in motion and puts Doctor Strange's positions where he, it's more difficult, but he himself is not really a threat to Doctor Strange. Oh, okay. Um, so when you all hear that that now, you can now <laughs> go back and reread um, this book, and you can see, I mean, maybe you don't want to be as ridiculous as I am, but I just thought that was funny, this sort of, it, it re... Um, it reframed Silver Dagger for me. Yeah, yeah, totally. I wonder what Steve would say to that comment. <laughs> yeah, well, in your next interview, when you speak to him next, you can ask him. You okay. can tell him that your co-host is ridiculous and, and now pictures him as a Doctor Strange rogue. So here, the thing about this issue, the, th the standout thing for me here is that we get to meet Agamotto. 
like all since the beginning of Doctor Strange, we have this eye of Agamotto, but who is Agamotto? Like, who is he really? So apparently he is a caterpillar, a giant caterpillar <laughs> straight out of Alice in Wonderland. They even make the reference to Alice in Wonderland in here. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was kind of funny. And you can just see the, the, the fun that he's having with it. He, um, I think people can get bogged down by making Doctor Strange too serious and making all of his stories like the end of the world kind of stories. But uh, um, Steve's really having some fun with this. No, it's it's true. Steve was having fun with this. I also like um, I like issue two. Yep. Where he fights the fake versions of the Defenders. I think it's it's an interesting take on things. And, um, you know, I, I think they're goofy funny group of random people like marvel recognized marvel characters and yet not recognizable in this odd other realm yeah um yeah so you're looking at that splash page there on page 404 and 405 yeah the mad hatter's tea party but it's not the mad hatter and it's it's a bunch of the heroes that we from the marvel universe now there's one character sitting behind hawkeye who i don't recognize but there is a bonus feature at the back of this book um, an early sketch of Brunner's art, and that's supposed to be Captain Marvel. But for some reason, they took him out and uh, and replaced him with this other guy that I don't recognize. Maybe it's supposed to be nobody. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting panel nonetheless. Um, and it's interesting that that those of you, and it's interesting that Valkyrie shows up to as well. Well, like, Valkyrie would have been part of the Defenders at this time. No, I, I realize that. Oh. It's just interesting that she shows up in a different role in this piece. Oh, like I she's see. Not at the, the, she's not at the tea party, and she's also more aware of what's going on. Like, she explains the situation to Doctor Strange. Right? It, is, it is her who says, you're the only one with a soul. You need to, you know, deal with this. So she has a different role in that, in that piece. And it's interesting as Englehart himself said in the interview he was trying to give women a more prominent role in his books. So, This one was kind of humorous because it has Doctor Strange just searching for his body. He's been His astral form has been ripped out because his body is, I guess, dead, apparently. Um, but uh, um, he's trapped inside the orb of Agamotto. This this is the issue where the, the collection gets its name, a separate reality. And I mean, this, well, this whole collection really was... I mean, a lot of it happens outside the Marvel Universe... Those monster fights didn't affect the rest of the Marvel Universe. So they were a separate reality. And then Doctor Strange is off in other dimensions. And in this case, it's not just a separate reality. It's a separate form. Oh, yeah. Issue number three is a reprint of Strange Tales number 126 and 127. And uh, we don't need to get into that one. We'll, we'll talk about those in um, volume our volume one or two discussion. I can't remember. But again, this is why I think this is such a great collection because they still give you the two pages. Yes. That the two were pages new. that frame them. Yeah, exactly. And number four is called where boundaries decay. Strange travels to death's castle and confronts death. Yes. Yeah. And I guess the, uh, what, something I didn't realize is that the eye of Agamotto and the orb of Agamotto draw their powers from necromancy. And so, when he dies that's why he's confronting death here is because it's all death although it's death related magic i guess yeah it's interesting that in this this whole volume more than once they reference dark arts like dr strange is a 
practitioner of the dark arts. I think Marvel has tried to play that down over the years a bit to make I it think more so. heroic. Totally, yeah. But that was the original. In the very first Ditko, he was the master of dark arts. Yeah. Like, that was his actual title. And then later, like, the title, the, the, the little caption on these covers say, the master of mystic arts. So in this one, he finds there is a void in eternity and it's in the shape of eternity the cosmic being eternity eternity is missing um so he flies into eternity this this void here yep and i guess i'm not exactly sure how this works but that um i guess because there's no eternity in death yes because death is finite so Doctor Strange finds this loophole, flies into eternity, therefore he escapes death's clutches, and now he can live forever, apparently. He now has eternal life, which I don't know if this is something that they explore <laughs> ever again, really, but um, yeah, he can't die. Um, of old age, I should say. They make the point of saying that he can die if he is, his head gets cut off or something like that. Yeah, but he he's, can be killed, but he won't die he of He won't age. die of old age. Yeah. I also like the fact that the Ancient One is back. So it reminds us that he's not... The Ancient One has also conquered to death. Right. So. Okay, I want you to go to page number 425 and take a look at this. This here. This is something really cool. So, um, so page 424 is a very big grid. It's a, a pretty standard grid format because um, Doctor Strange is searching for... The, he's entering the castle, um, Death's Castle. And then the final panel on page 224 bleeds into white. And then all of a sudden on page 225, he's entering another reality. And it is a total, all of the grids are totally askew. It's a very trippy, uh, like um, kind of Ditko-esque uh, panel, panel layout, very Gene Colan-ish as well. And then if you keep on flipping through, the entire time that he's in this other dimension facing death, um, the panel layouts are very strange. He's got panels within panels or he's got panels that are diagonal or askew um he plays with colors and that kind of stuff um so i like how he's thinking he's thinking um very very intentionally about the way he's he's drawing the um, different dimensions yes yeah okay again the very final page has a lot of exposition or final few pages because these are concepts that... Yeah, there are whole panels that are just exposition. And I think that's... Opposed to the Gardner Fox exposition, which was there because I think they ran out of space, I think this exposition is here because these are concepts that can't be illustrated. When you're talking about um, escaping death and and the effect that that's going to have on Strange, how do you draw that? I think it just has to be stated. No, that's fair. Okay, final issue. Uh, we get back to Silver Dagger. So, yeah, this is issue five, the end of the whole thing. Um, Cloak and Dagger, um, which, um, you know, it, it we get back to Earth, um, and we get the final confrontation between Silver Dagger and Strange. Silver Dagger has uh, been holding Clea hostage. He's pontificating about all he wants to do and make her his and how he's defeated Strange and how he's all powerful because he's got the eye of Agamotto and he... Has all these plans to eradicate wizardry and, and Doctor Strange's astral form reappears, uh, reclaims that Doctor Strange's body and and confronts 
Um, I, I love it. He doesn't reclaim his own that's body. Right. He reclaims the wax body with the headless wax body. That that's was right. so funny. Yep. Um, and has trouble picking up the head. But eventually he, he has it. And, um, well, first the headless body confronts, confronts him and, and yeah. falters. And yep. then um, we get another round after that. But it's it's interesting when the real Doctor Strange confronts him. Um, and that's where you get that reference, like I said, where where... He says, you know, you can't just read a book and, and become the the, the, the yeah. mystic master. And, and it's the same thing that Engelhardt himself said after talking about his research to, to write Doctor Strange. But it's it's good. And it's interesting because it reestablishes that the Eye of Agamotto chooses its master. You you can't just hold it and be in charge. It's not a gun. It's not a weapon in the same sense. Mm-hmm. It was a good ending. I found that it was a little bit of a anticlimactic because Doctor Strange is a character where... Um, because his power is magic, he can just kind of pull whatever he needs to out of a hat in order to save the day. And so I felt like there wasn't really a sense of peril here facing Silver Dagger, especially because we just realized that he's going to live forever and he's conquered death. And now he's just going to take care of this bad guy that isn't really that much of a, a threat. Um, so I found I, I liked... Um, I like the concept leading up to this point, but the the dismount was a little, a little rough for me. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Um, I liked Silver Dagger. I liked the fact that we just found out Doctor Strange can be killed for not having a head, and he initially fights without a head. Right, so. that was good. I like that part. <laughs> um, I think visually it's still stunning. It's still got those odd shaped panels and, and a lot of frenetic energy moving through the whole, the whole piece. Um, I, I think Silver Dagger was the right foil here, and I. I, like I said, I would love to see Silver Dagger come back, but that doesn't really happen much in the Marvel Universe. He's not a character that gets recycled well. Yeah, um, these small guys, if they come back, it's because there's like a huge event where every single character in the Marvel Universe shows up. So we'll see him like in the corner of the background of one panel, and then he'll probably die or something like that. Yep, probably, which yep. is too bad. So this is this is also Frank Brunner's final issue. His schedule just he just couldn't keep up with it, and he moved on to other things, um, including Howard the Duck. He got to create, co-create Howard the Duck with Steve Gerber. Yep. So, or sorry, no, he didn't co-create Howard the Duck, but he was the artist when Howard the Duck got his first ongoing series. Yes. Um, but and then Gene Colan returns in issue number six, which will be the first issue of volume four. Whenever that comes out. Yeah. Which I hope is sooner than later. Yes, I agree. Great final thoughts. Yeah, actually, I just thought it was a great way to explore uh, a part of the Marvel Universe that I hadn't really seen um, much of at all. And to be honest, I'm now interested in seeing some of where the Namor book was going. Right. Um, yeah, that whole period of Marvel during that transition, um, when they're switching distributors and stuff in the late seven, late late sixties, moving into the seventies, is a period that I really haven't touched much on at all. Um, when all these characters are getting their own books, like there was this huge explosion when Marvel switched distributors and could now have all of these titles that they wanted to. So all of the the books that were split books split into their own books. Yeah, and. Um, and then they also, the, like, the code was changing a little bit, so we get all these horror books like Tomb of Dracula and Frankenstein, yep. and we see a lot of these monsters coming out in these books like Doctor Strange. And um, I'm just not familiar with any of it, really. Yeah, no, so I like that. And I liked this one in particular because it gave us a taste of other books. Mm, yeah, yep. 
Cool. Well, thanks, Craig. Thanks for yeah, joining us on this. Thanks for uh, thanks for dragging me off Thor to explore Doctor Strange with you. Yeah, um, not really my area of expertise, so it was fun to to have a chance to look at that and, and explore this with you. Totally. Well, and the next time that you'll be joining us um, in a few months, um, we will talk about the next volume of the the DeFalco Friends Thor run, which is called Immortal Flesh. Um, it's not out as of this recording. It's coming out in a month or so, um, but that is some good stuff. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that, um, yeah. and I look forward to listening to the different volumes on X-Men and Spider-Man and Fantastic Four with uh, you and the other hosts. Nice. Well, thanks a lot, Craig. And uh, to, to paraphrase Stanley, uh, make mine Marvel Epic Podcast. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>